I'm Douglas Brush, and you're listening to Cybersecurity Interviews. Cybersecurity Interviews is the weekly podcast dedicated to digging into the minds of the influencers, thought leaders, and individuals who shape the cybersecurity industry. I discover what motivates them, explore their journey in cybersecurity, and discuss where they think the industry is going. The show lets listeners learn from the experts' stories and hear their opinions on what works and doesn't in cybersecurity. Hello and welcome to episode 19 of Cybersecurity Interviews. In this episode, we're speaking with Teresa Payton. Teresa is one of the nation's leading experts in cybersecurity and IT strategy. As CEO of Fortalist Solutions and co-founder of Dark Cubed, Teresa is a proven leader and influencer who works with her clients and colleagues to identify new and emerging threats. Teresa began her career in financial services with Bank of America and Wachovia. She then served as the first female chief information officer at the White House, overseeing IT operations for President George W. Bush and his staff. In 2015, Teresa was named a William J. Clinton Distinguished Lecturer by the Clinton School of Public Service. She's the author of several publications on IT strategy and cybersecurity and a frequent speaker on IT risk. In 2014, she co-authored the book Privacy in the Age of Big Data, which was subsequently featured on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. Among her numerous accolades and recognitions, Teresa was named one of the top 25 most influential people in security by Security Magazine and one of InfoSec's Rising Stars and Hidden Gems by Tripwire. In this episode, we discuss managing risk, communicating with business owners about security, why security needs to be designed around the human, her role at the White House, privacy versus security, how the government can actually help with cybersecurity, and so much more. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. Thanks for listening. Hello, Teresa, and thank you for joining me on Cybersecurity Interviews. How are you today? Oh, doing wonderful. It's great to talk to you. Well, great. Thank you for being on the show. And, you know, I was kind of looking at your background and, and see you've been doing cybersecurity for some time. Um, what keeps you so passionate about doing cybersecurity? Well, you know, at the end of the day, for me, it's really about protecting and defending people. You know, a lot of people get focused on the technology, on the tools, on the process, but companies are made up of people and you know that you're making a difference every time you help deflect an attack that could steal somebody's identity or do something to the Internet of Things or impact critical infrastructure and you know that you've made a difference in somebody's life personally when you protect businesses, the government, or individuals. And so I get fired up every morning. I feel so blessed to be in a career where I can fight bad guys from behind a keyboard. Yeah, it, it's, it is kind of fun doing, doing things from, from this end of it. I've, I've known people in military and law enforcement that are a little bit more on the front lines. And, you know, God bless them, but I, I just don't have the, <laughs> the courage for that. I, I like the technology side. And were you formally trained in uh, technology or security, or was it something that you came in from a different different angle? Yeah, a little bit of both. And uh, you know, so I was very fortunate that my high school had computer programming available, and I you know took computer programming classes in high school and loved it. And uh, then went on to you know college and got a certification in computers, along with my double major in economics and business administration. And then I got a great opportunity on a scholarship to go to University of Virginia and get my Master of Science in Management Information Systems, and then started my uh, career in banking, of all places. And, uh, you know, I didn't picture myself starting out there, but my husband was in the Navy at the time, and we were stationed in Jacksonville, Florida, and had the real, you know, just blessing of an opportunity to start to work for Barnett Banks, which is now part of Bank of America. And what was wonderful was they, you know, basically the sky was the limit. If you volunteered for stuff, you basically got to do it. It was a really exciting time in banking. And I just always begged to sort of be on the cutting edge of technology and service delivery. And by being on that cutting edge, I was also on the cutting edge of fraudsters and cyber criminals and money launderers. And so, you know, even though I was formally trained from high school all the way through my master's degree in uh, you know, coding and development and design and engineering and architecture, 
I started learning on the job, uh, basically how to fight fraud and how to fight cyber criminals uh, pretty early on in my banking career. And when you're saying, I'm kind of curious, and when you're saying cutting edge, what were some of the cutting edge things at the time that you were uh, involved with? Yeah, so what's interesting is, uh, you know, the first thing that we worked on was a huge customer data warehouse that basically anticipated your next buying opportunity with the bank or the next, maybe you didn't know you were going to buy something with the bank, but it was a great time for us to suggest products to you. And at the time, the vendors that we were working with as we were building all this in-house and using some different tools so that we were the biggest uh, data warehouse and biggest uh, data analytics cube around behavioral-based data that they had seen. Uh, and so, you know, kind of creating all of this information and putting it in one place and, you know, really kind of doing very granular market segmentation and buying patterns and buying behaviors, you could imagine if that ended up in the wrong hands, what a disaster that would be, uh, not just from a reputation perspective, but also, you know, to the customer because somebody would know everything about them. And, you know, so really just understanding that duty of care, uh, then going into the internet channel, uh, you basically being on that cutting edge of allowing people to not only log into the internet from home on their computers or their work computers, but going into the mobile banking. And so again, you know, looking for those opportunities to create this seamless, elegant and fabulous customer experience while at the same time trying to keep the bad guys out of the middle of that transaction and finding sort of that right tension point between um, making sure the customer felt great about the experience, but at the same time, we were protecting their data. Did the, and I'm curious just because this is something I've seen uh, in organizations too, is did the business have buy-in to developing security into the products at that time, or was it let's ship, get things out there, and then figure out how we'll do security later? You know, that's a, that's been a struggle and it's still a struggle today. And, you know, what I, what I realized over the course of my career, and if, if I could just pass, try to pass on some wisdom, and this is from literally having the battle scars, is really stay away from the fear, uncertainty, and doubt factor. You know, don't go FUD on the business. I mean, really what you want to do is talk about how making your customers love the experience while at the same time feeling good about their privacy and their security can actually be a market differentiator. So for example, if you look at uh, what Bank of America did, uh, and this is, this is a ways back, but they were having trouble getting a certain demographic of customers to adopt the online channel. And when they did customer focus groups, the customers said, well, we're leery of adopting this channel because you've trained us that there's all these fake websites out there and the internet is a dark and dangerous place. And so we don't really, we don't really see the need to move. And so they came up with this concept that said, well, what if we allowed you to pick out a picture and a passphrase? And unless that picture was presented to you, you know, if it wasn't presented to you, that's how you would know it was a fake site. And you would type in a passphrase and you would do that in addition to your user ID and password. How do you feel about that? And they said, yeah, that would actually make me more comfortable. Now, you and I both know adding that picture really didn't improve the overall security of that banking transaction, but it did make the customer feel more comfortable. Yes, I'm not at a fake Bank of America site. I'm at the real site. And so the adoption rate for that demographic went up. So I, I think if we can change the dialogue with the business unit, the buy-in will definitely be there. But I will tell you, it was it was a uh, it was definitely challenging, uh, you know, sort of early on to convince the business partner, hey, we need to build in time here for security testing. I mean, shoot, I, you'll anybody you know that's in quality assurance, not even security, but quality assurance, will tell you. Testing always gets shortcutted on the way out the door because it's something the business unit doesn't see unless it breaks in production. And security is kind of in that that same boat with quality assurance. And I think that the key is to really stress to the business unit of we're not here to tell you no. We're here to help you balance your risks, eliminate risks, and to actually create a great market differentiator by helping the customer feel more comfortable about transacting business with us. 
And I think you, you hit on the key kind of key phrase there is risk. It's it's about managing risks, not IT. So I think a lot of people in the the C-suite are now starting to come to that, particularly CIOs that are saying, well, okay, we, we have to look at this instead of so narrowly focused around IT security, but business risk. Are you seeing more organizations starting to kind of wake up to that fact? Absolutely, I am. Um, you, you do now, I mean, we, so our my, at my company at Forlist, we work with the U.S. government. Those contracts are classified, so that's all I can say about that. But we work with private sector companies, and then we actually do uh, protect the cyber footprint of individuals and help individuals with the challenges that come with living in a digital age. But on the business side, I can tell you, more often than not, uh, the client wants us to make a presentation to the board, and it is on the board agenda on a regular basis. And that really makes my heart glad. Now, the one thing I'm not seeing, though, is I am not seeing board members who are actually cybersecurity members. I'm seeing people who have prior risk uh, in their background. I'm seeing people who maybe had overall responsibility for tech and ops. And, oh, by the way, cybersecurity was in there. But I'm really not seeing a lot of the boards that we interact with actually have somebody who has had a portion of their career or all of their career dedicated to cybersecurity. And I think once you see that change, you'll, I mean, because leadership starts from the top. Uh, so, I, but I, I, but I am really, really encouraged that we're talking about it more in terms of this is a business problem to solve, not a technology problem to solve. Oh, exactly. And what, you know, when you do present to the boards, what are some of the, I guess, maybe tools or things that you use to kind of get the message across? Well, you know, it depends on the culture uh, because the, sometimes the culture loves kind of a in-your-face moment and sometimes the culture is a little bit more genteel. So we, we typically tailor our board presentations based on the, the culture. But uh, one of the things that I've seen uh, be very effective is we typically will do a cyber footprint review of the board members themselves. Uh, so we'll actually do a, you know, our deep dive is five levels deep doing open source intelligence, uh, deep web, dark web uh, digging on individuals. And uh, so in some cases where the culture can handle it, we'll actually do sort of a two level deep on the board members and sort of their circle of trust around them and, and hand those out confidentially. Um, that usually gets their attention. Uh, we'll even do sort of a a two-level dive on the company itself and the things that we find uh, scattered across the, the web on the company itself. Uh, another tool that we've actually used is sort of, um, we'll do a Kali Linux demo where I'll show them, you know, this is how easy it is for an attacker. They run your domain name. They get all emails associated with the domain name. They get IP addresses associated with the domain name. Now they can do some searches and pretty easily figure out operating systems in use here. Uh, now they can go to LinkedIn and see, you know, tech people like to you know, kind of brag about the different things that are in their backgrounds. So you start looking at their certifications and, and I show them that this takes less than 30 minutes to do this research. And now I've got everything I need for some type of a social engineering attack vector. And that usually works pretty well across all different types of cultures. Uh, the other thing we'll do is if it's uh, after we've already done an assessment, we'll go over, if we were in their shoes, here's the top three things we would tackle, and here's how we would do it in a no-cost or low-cost way, and then here's what we would plan for for investment. I really try to give the boards, if I were you today, I would do these things tomorrow type of advice instead of, here's a big, scary report, and you've got issues, and you just really just sort of walk in their shoes for a little bit and, and give them kind of that, that advice on what they can do. And one of the things I've, I've discussed with other people kind of doing similar things is to certainly push the, the risk decisions uh, onto the board to say, look, you know, I'll identify where these issues are, you know, certainly try not to use FUD, but ultimately they need to decide a, a, a risk, how they're going to treat the risk on mm -hmm. the board level. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the other thing I, I stress to the board, too, is uh, think about delegating authorities. So how much how much risk do you really want to be the bottleneck for your once a quarter board meeting 
for us to bring this to you? Or do you want to set the tone on what your risk threshold is, what your appetite is, and then and then ensure that you hire really good people and give them enough budget and leeway to make the decisions for you and just report where they need your help and report progress. And in a lot of cases, that can be a really freeing moment for the CIO and the chief risk officer and the chief legal officer, because then the board sets the tone. Here's our risk appetite. And if there's any confusion in the gray area, that's when you come to the board. But other than that, in your day to day, here's your budget. Go go make it so. And that that can be really, really helpful. But I agree with you. It's it's important for the board to set those uh, basically those table stakes. Everybody knows what they're aiming for. Sure. And a lot of things that I've seen try to also improve that discussion is bringing in um, metrics to kind of show improvement. Do you find that's an effective strategy as well to be able to show there's some measurable outcome to spending the time doing this? Absolutely. And depending on the industry they're in, kind of my favorite to use with them is to compare them to the NIST framework because, you know, candidly, that's like a minimum pay to play. If you're in business and you've bought one device and you talk to the internet, it's it's time to look at the NIST framework. That's not the end all be all, but I think it's a good way to sort of show a capability and maturity on how you think about these issues, what you've implemented. Um, my caution to everyone listening to this is, but I don't like checklists. I don't like generic checklists that everybody follows because our businesses are not all the same. And so the you know, sure, the vulnerabilities are the same for everybody, but the risk of that vulnerability actually impacting your ability to do business or putting you out of business is different based on who you are and what you do. But I think that that NIST framework can be a great metric to sort of benchmark you against when you start the journey. And then as you continue the journey over the years to benchmark against. My next caution, though, is make sure you make sure you remind the board that Technology evolves and changes, and cyber criminals evolve and change. Therefore, the goalpost actually moves on us every year. And so it's not, we're not benchmarking. You know, so you may see something that was green last year go to red. It doesn't mean that you have bad people or bad things. It means the industry changed or you integrated new technology, or it means cyber criminals changed their tactics. And so based on you know, kind of the, the metrics that we're using and, and that benchmark, you're now red because there's new things that need to be addressed. Yeah, it's funny. I think we saw that a lot happen with with ransomware. Is it with the assumption of okay, we can we can try to make things compliant and locked down with credit cards, and that'll work to a point. And then maybe the attackers will give up and say, okay, we'll just try something new. And then focus on ransomware, and everybody's like, oh crap, now we have to pivot and deal with this. We weren't expecting that, <laughs> and so so we try to build in that that forward thought of thinking what's going to be next. Now you were. A, uh, you know, in the C-suite yourself as the CIO of the White House. How did that evolve and how did that opportunity present itself? Yeah, what, a, what an incredible opportunity. Um, you know, it's interesting. I was just back from a very short uh, maternity leave with my second and short because the bank was going through a merger and they really needed me to get get back to work. <laughs> and I uh, was back in the office and uh, at the end of a very long day, my executive assistant came in and said, uh, the White House called and you you need to give them a call back. And my first response was being a sleep deprived mom of a seven week old. Uh, I said, uh, the apple juice company or the clothing company? And she said, no, 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 silly. The, the White House at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. And so my next question was, am I in trouble? Uh, you know, you're in banking, right? So I'm like, am I in trouble? Oh and my God, said, what no. did I do? Yeah. yeah, what did I do? I just got back to work. What did I mess up? And uh, and she said, no, silly. Uh, he, President Bush is looking for a new chief information officer. And they called to ask if you want to be on the candidate slate. And I said, okay, wait a minute. Okay, now, now you're talking like La La Land stuff. And I said, I don't know anybody at the White House. I don't know anybody on the campaign this has to be a social engineering trick. I'm not going to call them back. And she said, well, I've already talked to them for an hour. I'm like, what did you talk to them about? And she said, they know a lot about you already. I'm like, oh, no. So I said, I'm going to call them back and we're going to have a good laugh about this. So I called back and I was incredibly cheeky on the phone. Honestly, I'm not real proud of it, but I'm, but I'm in a, you know, kind of a straight shooter. So I, 
was like, hey, I heard President Bush needs a CIO. And John says he sure does. And I said, and you just called little old me out of the blue, just called me at work. And he said, yeah, sure did. And I said, yeah, I don't believe you. I said, my, my daddy raised me that if something sounds too good to be true, it probably is. And I said, we're not going to have a detailed conversation until we have a way to pass credentials. And he said, see, I told them you were going to be like this. This is awesome. And I said, you told who? I'm like, wait, I'm not talking to you. So he says, uh, okay, go to whitehouse.gov, not whitehouse.com, because that was a porn site at the mm-hmm. time. Go to whitehouse.gov, look up the White House operator, hang up the phone, call them and ask for me. So I do that still in my sleep-deprived state. And then he picks up the phone and I said, yeah, about that. I'm really, I'm apologetic. I'm so sorry to be rude. He goes, no, he said, every CIO um, who's going to be in charge of security should definitely um, behave that way. And he's like, no, I think it's great. So I I went through the process with some other candidates and, um, you know, just prayed about it and talked to my family about it. And uh, I got offered the job and uh, commuted every week for two and a half years back and forth between uh, North Carolina and D.C., And, you know, it was a great experience. I met so many dedicated people that have served many, many presidents. They don't care who's president. They just care about protecting the executive office of the president and just really smart, bright people. And while I was there, obviously, a lot was invested in me and my clearance and my training and the programs I was read into. And and that's really when I realized that security was so fundamentally broken and that the adversary I really had the upper hands in many, many ways and just felt like I was called to create a security company to do something different and to really, you know, kind of upend conventional wisdom on how to do security because I changed, I changed my mind on how security needed to be approached while I was there. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a real tipping point for me because when I was in banking, my thought process was, if we could write better policies, get better technology, and just train the customers and the business partners, life would be better. And that was my philosophy, and it was the philosophy of many people in the security industry. And when I got to the White House, I thought, oh my gosh, Like, if I'm going to try and train these guys every single day on the changing threats targeting them and expect them to even pay attention to half of what I tell them, I'm going to fail. I'm going to fail at my job because... You know, and that's really when I changed my mindset and said, no, security needs to be designed for the human psyche. Stop asking the human to conform to security protocols. I mean, look at strong passwords. There's there's not a lay person that's not in security that loves strong passwords. That is an example of something not designed for the human psyche. So they type one in, they forget what it is, they recycle them, they write them down, they keep them on their phone. Uh, you know, they use uh, password one, two, three. And so security for me, and I'm convinced we need to continue to sort of upend the apple cart every year on how we think about doing security and doing things proactively and reactively. But, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's how the role came about. Um, just an incredible honor. And uh, it's really shaped my philosophy and it's made me even more determined that we can win against the bad guys. We just have to change how we do things. I'm sure, you know, certainly with the ex- executive branch of uh, of our government, that there is a predisposed culture of security inherent to it. Was information security part of it at that time? It was and it wasn't. So what was interesting was we had a lot of really smart people focused on security, of course, and it was of utmost importance. And, you know, data breach was considered something unacceptable and shouldn't happen. So we had really good people doing their best effort. But you know, if you think back to 2006, not everybody had a 24 by 7 security operations center that was manned and all the right tools and, you know, kind of the dashboards and, you know, kind of different information coming in. And uh, we didn't have one either. So we had people who worked 24 by 7, but we didn't have an official place for them to sit with tools and information and, you know, sort of the call tree and the protocols and, you know, all the technology and uh, so I was able to, you know, sit down with senior staff and assess like, hey, some really great work has been done and really bright people are here, but we need a major investment in how we think about security, what we're doing about it, and how we proactively and reactively respond to incidents. And got that blessing, got that permission, and we built the first ever 24 by 7 SOC for the executive office of the president. Um, and really just 
reshaped how we did security. Um, one of the terms that I use with senior staff that they hadn't heard before was aggressive offensive on security. And so getting permission to basically, you know, I, I, the way I characterize it is if a device is behaving badly, uh, kill first and ask questions later and, and, you know, not kill the human, but kill the device and literally just kill the device and render it inoperable. And, you know, that makes you socially very unpopular uh, with senior staff and executives. If you do that without the right protocol and without creating the right parameters for the kill switch, um, so you have to really think through that and think about, you know, what's the downstream impact of doing something like that. So we didn't just flip the kill switch willy nilly, but we had parameters and protocols that we used. And I'm convinced, and, you know, we use that today, we protect significant security events. Uh, we, you know, things of national importance um, and, you know, we protect companies this way. And I'm convinced it's helped us avert some crises uh, not all, but uh, I'm convinced it's helped us deflect uh, probes and things like that, that that could have been ultimately a disaster. Sure. And I guess in, in, if you're looking back at the, the overall time in, with the White House, I think what I would be curious to know is what, what was the biggest lesson that you really learned there, if you had one takeaway? It really is designed for the human. I, I when I, so there's 13 components that make up the executive office of the president and which is great because I always said I had about like 18 bosses because, you know, as I'd walk around to the components, everybody had the number one priority for the president. I'm like, yep, there's like 13 number one priorities plus the vice president, plus the president's office and the first lady's office. So, um, but my biggest lesson learned was that whole human psyche design thing. And I'll give you one quick example. I, during one of my walkabouts, I asked this one team that traveled a lot, had really quick deadlines a lot of what they were working with uh, wasn't classified, but man, it was highly, highly, highly sensitive, as most things at the White House are highly sensitive, even if they're not classified. And I was asking them that based on the security protocols we had in place, um, was there anything kind of clunky that got in the way of them doing their job? And they said, oh, yeah, of course. And I said, well, what do you do? Because your deadlines are so tough. And they said, oh, we take pictures of screens or we print screens and we take it with us. And I just kind of had this visual of like these print screens sitting on a bed in a hotel room in a foreign country and, you know, people checking, you know, I just kind of had this quick vision, maybe based on watching too many spy movies. I don't know, but I just, you know, it's what, it was that moment where I thought, Oh my gosh, in the name of security, I actually lost line of sight to the data. Like, I don't see it. Like if you print screen it, I can't see it. And I like the old me from banking would have been like, okay, let's rewrite the policy and let's retrain everybody. But the new me said, we didn't design for the human psyche. So I said, well, what could we do differently? And we actually redesigned the security protocols. And then I explained to them my concern about losing line of sight of that data with them doing print screens. And they agreed. So we found like really good common ground there. So to me, that, that biggest aha moment, and I know this sounds really basic is actually do a walkabout. So if you're responsible for security, get out into the business unit, um, talk to your customers, talk to your business units and say, Hey, you know, non-attributional here, I'm not going to report it to anybody, but is there anything in the name of security that you've got to do a workaround and your people will open up and you will learn so much, but that's really what it is. Is security is fundamentally broken. We spend money, a ton of money, and um, we still forget about the human element. And everybody keeps saying it's all about training. I humbly disagree. I think training is incredibly important, but it's not all about training. I mean, we got to rethink how we create safety nets around the human. So maybe to, to, to rethink that would be, it's more about, I think as you said, the kind of the design, not the training, because we're trying to train them on bad design. Exactly. Yeah. So if we have, a, I mean, think about how many things do you use today in the technology world where you never read the manual? You just figure it out because yeah. it works like an app and it's very simple. And if you have to read a manual, you get annoyed. I mean, I know I do. Why can't security protocols be designed that way? We can do better. We're really smart. We can do better. Definitely. Now, you also wrote a few books, uh, Protecting, Your, uh, Protecting Your Internet Identity and Privacy in the Age of Big Data. 
why did you decide to focus writing books on privacy as opposed to maybe other areas of information security? Sure. Um, well, you know, if I had known I was going to end up on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, I would have written that one sooner. Um, that, <laughs> that, that was a, I mean, it's kind of hard to talk working at the White House, but I got to say, being on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart was pretty darn amazing. <laughs> um, and what a great man. Um, you know, you know, what's interesting is you know, we had post 9-11, um, you know, the world changed, um, maybe some for the good. Some I don't think necessarily for the good. And and in sort of that, you know, a lot of things were done um, that made sense at the time, but a lot of things were done in the name of security and surveillance. And I started to ask myself, you know, will my kids, when they grow up, have any privacy? And you know, you, you look at something like Minority Report, and it, and we're not too far away. You know, the Tom Cruise movie, and you know, the argument was ongoing about you know privacy versus security, and you can't have you got to give up privacy in the name of security. And then Zuckerberg was saying, you know, privacy is dead. Get over it. And and I just felt like this is not this is this is not America. This is not. A democracy. And when privacy dies in the name of security, and we don't have an open, you know, when citizens think that they're under surveillance, and therefore they can't say something they don't like that the government's doing or anybody in, in power structure is doing, then democracy dies. People, I mean, the founding fathers wanted us to all have freedom of speech. And so I Ted and I, Ted's a privacy lawyer. So Ted and I said, look, our second book, we want to do privacy in the age of big data and just really inform people and make it a layman's book. It's, it's not, it's not for the geek to read. It's for the geek to give to their family. So you know how all of us have to do tech support for our families. Just give them Ted's and my two books and then you're done. Then you don't have to deal with it. <laughs> but uh, so we wrote it for you to give to your families, not necessarily for you to read, but, but you know, what's interesting is right as we were getting ready to go to deadline, the Edward, Edward Snowden announcement came out that there, you know, was a whistleblower, that there was data, that there were surveillance programs. And I actually called the publisher and I said, we have to extend this deadline. And she said, for a passing headline? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah. And I said to the publisher, oh, sweetheart, I mean, the world just turned upside down. And I said, this is a con whether whether history agrees with him or not or decides he's a hero or a traitor that's for history to decide and not me but this is a bombshell and if we don't include it in the book um this book will be out of date before you even get it on the shelves so that that's really sort of the motivator so it was pre-snowden that ted and i were talking about you know we are kind of hurling over a cliff and we don't even know it and it, with every swipe with every agreement for traffic cameras. And we just wanted to create a layman's book to open up a healthy debate so that Americans can decide where they want those lines to be. And those lines are gonna move as technology moves and as our attitude changes. And, and if I could say one thing too for the industry, we have got to get the relationship between encryption and law enforcement figured out. And it's not backdoors, backdoors are architecturally unsound. But we, there's a, there's got to be a new creative way to do something, and maybe it's expiring keys that are, you know, keys that are created when there's a warrant and they expire, and five people have to have the keys, and the keys have to be present. I don't know what it is, but I tell you this right now: if we don't get this figured out, if we have another terrorist attack where there are massive casualties a massive loss of life. My concern for America and for other democracies around the world is in a knee-jerk moment, you and I will lose our privacy altogether. And it'll be well-intended people. But we, in a knee-jerk moment where everybody points and says, encryption is the real reason why we didn't have the data we needed, you and I will lose our, our privacy forever. And so I really want to see the best and brightest minds in law enforcement and encryption and maybe people who don't even work in this space who are just like those creative genius minds to get in a room and don't come out until we come up with something that follows a legal framework and is something we've not thought of before 
but certainly no no back doors because as you and I both know, you can't put a security bouncer at the back door to say, oh yes, you're legitimately law enforcement and not a cyber criminal. It doesn't work that way. Yeah, you're just basically designing in a weakness uh, yeah. to the process. Exactly. And from the books, I guess what, you know, we certainly want want folks to, to read them, but if there was one one small piece of advice that you give to people that is kind of extracted out that uh, for people to protect their their digital privacy as a maybe a non-technical person what what would be that advice well you know as we know we've got the fcc rules are kind of up for being revoked where the isp providers um, will now be able to harvest years in my search that we do for the service that we pay for by the way um, and so my my advice to the layman would be there's a there's a couple of really easy things you can do and most of them are free um, the first one is, is you know, you can use something like Google Chrome's incognito. And we talked to the privacy officer, and it really does not cache your searches. You can also use things like Privacy Badger and Ghostery, which are, you know, great ways to alert you that somebody is trying to track you, and then you get to make the decision whether or not you let them track you. Um, the other thing is, is I'm a big fan of if you have to hand your cell phone out, constantly is get a Google voice number and hand out the Google voice number because more and more people are trying to text you a code for two-factor authentication to your phone. And that's part of the security model right now, whether we like it or not. And I don't want your mobile phone number floating out there for the potential to be spoofed or somebody to do a man in the middle attack and get that code. So it's better for you to give out a Google Voice number and just forward your mobile phone to that Google Voice number. Um, and then lastly, I'm a big fan of having a lot of different email addresses. So the email address you use with your bank and health insurance, don't use that on social media. Don't use that on the shopping sites. So when those are breached, you don't have a bad guy who's got your email address and now they're just playing around with password resets. So those are some of the layman's things that I, I would give and they're, those are all free. Yeah. I, and I, I think that's, you know, there's, there's almost kind of a, a reaction to on the consumer end of, well, what is this going to cost me in either dollars or time? Um, and I think it's going to kind of uh, designing things for the human where they can adopt something that is not painful in either category. Right. And, and, and you know, so one of the things I was, when I was, as researching you for the show was I saw that you, you know, we're part of a startup called Dark Cube, and the one thing that I really picked off from that is that it's a cost-effective method for understanding and managing cybersecurity for threat exposure in organizations. So, focusing on cost-effective, do you still run into situations organizationally where they they feel they can't afford cybersecurity solutions, or that cybersecurity solutions are just way too complicated? Yes, we do, and I mean, even in mid-sized firms that you know spend a lot of money. I mean, and it. And I don't blame them for feeling that way. I mean, if you, if you think about it, you know, every dollar you spend on your business, on creating a delightful customer experience, on marketing the company, on salespeople, on talent, you can tie that back to an ROI. It's either working or it's not. Every dollar you spend on security for something that may or may not happen is a dollar you can't spend investing in the business. And so it's hard for them to really understand the business value. And that's where we've got to do a better job on explaining that business value. But, you know, the, the other thing too is um, a lot of them have limited budgets. And so they're trying to make a choice between do I hire a person or do I buy an expensive tool? And if I buy the expensive tool, who's going to watch it? Um, you know, so it's, yeah. and, and that's the reason why my business partner, uh, Vince Chrysler, we met at the White House. He's a former U.S. Air Force, worked for White House military, um, office, the uh, White House Communications Agency. And so that's why we founded Dark Cube and he's the CEO of that company because we felt like, you know, as companies are trying to make these choices, you know, what if for the companies who have lots of money to spend and really good people, but they've got junior people who don't really know how to prioritize the blinking lights that go off on technology tools, this is something that's low cost that integrates with the rest of the SOC and the junior people can use this to prioritize their day. But for the companies who have one person or no people, and they're trying to at least do something, 
this is, I mean, literally we can put it on automated, you know, we can block bad traffic, we can score it, we can watch it for them and tell them they have an issue. And so it really gives them kind of a lower cost, um, streamlined way of at least doing something and then getting back to the business of, you know, being in business. I mean, nobody ever said like, wow, I cannot wait to get my bakery open and have first class cybersecurity behind my bakery. I mean, nobody talks like that, right? Yeah. And and they shouldn't have to. So we, we were really just sort of looking for that opportunity to kind of help, you know, companies out and, you know, kind of for the people who have nobody have something very simple and elegant to use. And then for the people who have you know, all the tools and all the people, but not everybody's going to be a senior person to kind of help those more junior people prioritize their day. Yeah, I think I, I you know, heard some some statistic. Well, Lisa Noah's out at RSA um, uh, last month or two, a month ago or two months ago. But, you know, I think during one of the keynotes, we were talking about the one particular enterprise having like 80 something different products in there. And it's not just putting more products in. It's just not going to solve the solution. Um, and every single product you put in, somebody has to manage that. And it seems to be that there tends to be a tendency at, at times within our own industry of, of pushing more product in uh, without thinking of the, the consequence of what that really means. No, I, I agree with you. And I, I got to tell you, I, you know, I've, I've never been more fired up and motivated um, and passionate about this line of work. But at the same time, I'm, I'm frustrated and you know, between now and 2021, the global cost of cybercrime is going to hit $6 trillion. And between now and 2021, we're going to spend a trillion dollars around the globe on security products and security solutions. And I'm going to tell you, I can't remember one security problem that our industry has actually made go away. We've reduced risk or we've actually added layers of complexity but I can't think of one problem that's gone. We still get spam. We just get less. Mm -hmm. We still get malware. We just get less. We, um, we, we still have bad traffic knocking on our doors that the ISPs deliver to our, our, you know, homes and businesses every single day didn't go away. And we still have those horrible passwords. And so I just, you know, part of me, I'm like, we have got to figure this out or, I mean, I, I want the good guys to win. And the only way we win is we've got to start really disrupting ourselves. And that that's going to be tough because the product industry, no offense to them, there's a lot of great products and a great people behind those products. But that pushing of product is part of our issue. Oh, totally. Yeah. And I guess, you know, kind of looking forward now, certainly the last couple of years, cybersecurity and particularly last last year was on the forefront of a lot of discussions and national news um, in a lot of different areas. But do you feel that the good guys can win in this battle? And what does the next, say, two or three years look like? I, I do think, you know, we have small victories here and there. Um, the next two to three years, I mean, I, I think, you know, we've already seen ransomware um, is a very popular cottage industry with cyber criminals, and that's going to continue to happen. We'll see extortionware take off, too, because why not? You, know, you can get in, get into somebody's email system or document system and then threaten to dump their documents on the Internet. You might actually be able to get a bigger payout. Um, so extortionware is going to be on the rise. I think you'll see information warfare and misinformation warfare continue. Um, you know, I, I always worry with, uh, you know, the kind of the whistleblower and let's dump a bunch of stuff on the internet, uh, the authenticity. And I think if anybody's thinking about any kind of career in sort of forensic anthropology of digital, um, of digital communications, we're going to need you because, and you know, there, there's no degrees. I looked for that. I was but, about to uh, say, I wasn't sure what school was offering that, but I know, right. <laughs> but seriously, to, to really determine the authenticity of when somebody says, yeah, I, you know, this is the treasure trove of documents and correspondence I just stole from a politician or a business and they dump it on the internet. We need the forensic anthropologist to actually do the forensics and say, yes, this is legitimately theirs. And so I, I would say to anybody listening, if you're trying to figure out where your niche is in cybersecurity, we're definitely going to need you for that. 
um, and you will be in high demand in these next couple of years. Um, I think you're going to see us do a better job taking all of that behavioral-based data and leveraging the power of big data analytics to do a better job on user authentication. So we could do a lot more with location-based, behavior-based, time of day, how you swipe, how you type, and do a lot more with that information to truly do a better job on user authentication. Um, but I, cybercrime not going away and you know, going to continue, the data breaches are going to continue to happen because we haven't truly solved for all the root causes. I mean, I, I continue to, you know, be amazed uh, with the companies that we work with and they're all just, just delightful clients. But I can tell you a hundred percent of the time when we do our social engineering exercise, we get in Oh yeah. and we, and we don't just get in, but usually no longer than 48 hours, we have server admin access we can see bank accounts, we can see emails, like we own them. And, um, you know, and some of these companies are not mom and pop shops. These are, you know, Fortune 100 who have significant security programs in place. And so uh, these next couple of years, you know, you're also going to see the Internet of Things, you know, what happened on October 21st of 2016 to DIN's infrastructure, mm -hmm. I mean, they got away with a lot. Um, so I, I think we'll see things like that continue. Some will be to send a message. Some will be for diversion tactics to do other things. Yeah, and we're, I think we're, we're also at a very interesting point now between cybersecurity being in popular culture, really maybe on the forefront of a lot of people's minds, both in business and personal, um, and everything that's happening with uh, the government and certainly people's government relations and how they feel about the government right now, having been on both the private sector and the government sector, do you think the government right now is in a position to be uh, a help or a hindrance in solving some of these problems? You know, there's some bright spots. I mean, you have the work that's done out of DHS with the private public sector partnership that they have, and especially with critical infrastructure you have FBI InfraGuard. I sit on the board for North Carolina, and there's a great public-private sector relationship there for both physical security and cybersecurity. Um, but, you know, the government's got its own source of challenges. You know, the, the inspector general went back in and looked at the Office of Personnel Management and said the problems that existed that created the massive data breach of anybody who ever went through the OPM process back to the 1980s, which was the age of big hair and big shoulder pads, right? Yeah. You know, all of that data was there for the taking and taken. And the inspector general said many of the same issues still exist today. Uh, excuse me. Uh, is that is the attitude? Well, the data is already gone. So what's the point? I mean, so I think, you know, the government has its own sets of challenges with legacy systems, a lot of conflicting priorities, um, you know, a challenging procurement process and, uh, you know, getting getting not just the best and the brightest staff in place, which is a lot of great people working in, in the government, but also being able to bring in the right bright minds from the outside to help them solve some of these big problems. But I think one area I would love to see the government help more is to create incentives. I would love to see a research and development tax credit for companies who invest money in security. I mean, wouldn't that be great? So instead yeah. of Instead of beating everybody with a stick once you've had a data breach, how about beforehand, why don't you acknowledge that every dollar you spend buying a tool or hiring a person or sending people to training, that you can actually put that in for an R&D tax credit? Why not uh, look for some type of uh, safe harbor type of provisions? And, uh, the, and then lastly, this is something that frustrates me, is a lot of times we have all of the information needed to open up a case against the cyber criminals, but they're not on American soil. And we need better international accords to be able to open a case and prosecute and bring justice to the victims of data breaches. And that is something that infuriates law enforcement today and companies like mine that are helping on the forensics after a data breach and you have all the information you need to at least open a case to seek prosecution 
and it goes nowhere. So those international courts would be vital. Uh, and creating some gentleman agreements across these countries that says, look, if you are harboring cyber criminal gangs, that you will do your own raids and you will shut people down and you will prevent them from hacking into us instead of turning a blind eye um, to what they're doing in your own country. Yeah, no, those those are great, um, great approaches that I don't think have been given enough thought because, again, as we were saying before, it's not just a a bits and bytes and technology problem. It, it's about dealing with humans and how humans are going to interact with each other to solve some of these problems. Exactly. And so, you know, I really appreciate you taking the time today to be on the show. What What's some of the things that you're doing and where can people find you? Sure. So you can uh, find us on social media. We're uh, on LinkedIn and I'm Tracker Payton on uh, Twitter. The Fortalis uh, company account is Fortalis LLC. Uh, we're on Instagram and Facebook as well. Uh, you can also call us at 877-487-8160. And uh, you know, we just, we're hiring. So that's one thing if people are listening, especially if you have your clearance. Uh, we are hiring all different disciplines in cybersecurity, especially if you have your clearance. Um, clearance not required, but that's kind of where we've got the biggest need right now. Um, we do a lot of work in the aggressive offensive. Uh, we do red team, pink team, blue team. Uh, we do cyber risk assessments, and we do them a lot differently than you know, kind of your traditional how the kind of the big firms do it. And um, then we do a lot with social engineering and education. We also do a lot with the Internet of Things. We have quite a few companies that want our help in the design process to make sure it is designed for the human and easy to maintain uh, the security on the firmware and the Internet of Things devices, which is really cool. We're really excited to be on sort of the front end um, instead of like after it's already developed and we come in and say, oh, you're kind of missing all these things before you go to market. Uh, but really, we work in all different industries, and uh, it's just an, an honor and a pleasure with some of the best clients in the world. And, and I really have the smartest, best, dedicated team um, I could ever hope for or ask for. And I believe you'll also be uh, keynoting the Infuse conference for Guidance Software, correct? Yes. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. Should be a good and, one. Uh, and fingers crossed, we're hoping for a season two for Hunted. So if uh, people listening haven't watched Hunted, you can binge watch it on CBS On Demand. Yeah, I'll make sure I put the show notes for that show and everything else that we discussed um, when we put the episode live. But well, I great. great. Yeah, I thank you so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, time thanks and, for having me. Yeah. yeah, have me back anytime. You're a great host. Oh, thank you so much. Well, I enjoyed the conversation and uh, I'll look forward to speaking to you again soon. All right. Take care. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today on Cybersecurity Interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks. We'll talk soon.